Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. There are innumerable benefits to working from home instead of in an office, starting with the elimination of a grinding two-way commute every day. And even if we do end up working more hours when we work at home, we also end up seeing our families more and potentially have extra time in our days to exercise, cook, and even sleep. So what's not to like? Well, we're going to be discussing some of the downsides of remote working today, oriented around the science which shows that human beings are actually hardwired to thrive by connecting with other people. And so that means the loss of connection we get during the eight to 10 hours we work alone every day has the potential to do us long-term harm. My guest today is John Levy. He's a behavioral scientist whose new book, You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Relationships, is a New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today bestseller. One of the other challenges that comes from working remotely a lot of the time is building and sustaining relationships. Friendships and acquaintances that we've traditionally built in an office are beneficial when we need access to information or support, and it's just simply harder to establish new relationships when most of our interactions with others are on Zoom. In the words of John, the people around us define our success and have the potential to change the course of our lives. So another topic for today's discussion will be on how you can create meaningful connections with people when a lot of your life may now be virtual. And before I introduce John, let me share just a couple more pieces of information as background. First, he's famous for creating what he now calls influencer dinners. As part of what began as an unusual social experiment, he started inviting people to his home and involved them in cooking dinner and washing dishes and cleaning floors. And the guests would not know each other's identities. They'd be working together for an hour or so, preparing meals, getting everything set up without knowing who they were actually talking to. And the goal of his gatherings became something much greater than networking, but really to build meaningful and lasting relationships. And since its inception, more than a decade ago, the Influencers has grown into the largest private group of its kind worldwide. Second, research by Brigham Young University's Dr. Julianne Holt Lundstad shows that the most important predictor of living a long life is social integration, which means how many people we connect with every day. And brand new University of Chicago research confirms this and shows that it's actually the routine interactions we have with many people, including work colleagues, the dry cleaner, people at a yoga class, etc., that contribute to human well-being. And they even found that people living in major urban areas have far less depression simply because they interact with more people every day. And that doesn't necessarily have to be a meaningful interaction. It can be a brief one. So it's really the quantity over the quality of interactions that leads to human thriving. So we'll be talking about that. So a big focus of our conversation will be on how leaders can ensure a sense of community and especially belonging within their teams when people on it see each other in person far less frequently. We're going to cover a lot of ground and I'm excited now to welcome you to the podcast, John Levy. Mark, I'm so excited to be here. Just based on the early conversation that we had, going to have so much fun with this one. Oh, well, I'm really looking forward to it. So let's get to it. One of the big themes of this podcast is how essential connection, belonging, collaboration, and trust are to human thriving, especially in our workplace. It's something we don't always think about. But your book, John, greatly emphasizes those themes. And so I'm wondering what influenced you to research and write this. 
So the the answer is actually kind of on the embarrassing side. <laughs> you know how like when you're growing up, you watch TV and you see these like groups of friends all hanging out together, being like a ragtag group of misfits, but like having adventures and fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that totally wasn't me. I was like the super geeky kid who had no friends. I was a pretty lonely kid, to be honest. Huh. I mean, like I had some friends, but I was into comic books and computers in the 80s and it wasn't cool yet. Now everybody knows the Marvel movies and everybody travels with a computer in their pocket. So it was really born from wanting to understand what it is that causes people to connect and build relationships and how important these factors are in our lives. And while I was researching, I came across some incredible ideas having to do with the dramatic impact that our social ties have on one another. And I felt that it was important to share it. But not only share that, but give people a clear path on how to make deeper relationships. I don't think that's embarrassing at all. I think it's really insightful that the idea had to come from somewhere. And so you responded in like a really positive way to it. You personally believe that the fundamental element that defines the quality of our lives is the people we surround ourselves with and the conversations that we have with them. And you also believe that our own personal influence is a byproduct of who we're connected to, how much they trust us, the sense of community we share. So I want to make sure we talk about your influence dinners. What was your initial motivation? Was it really just to create greater connections since you didn't experience a lot of that growing up? Or was there some other reason? And what's been the benefit in your life to having them? So the dinners are kind of born from a funny scenario. That idea of that our social ties have such a profound impact on us really changed my perspective on how do I have an impact on my own life, right? I was 28 at the time, and I was heavily in debt from college. I had a career that was kind of going nowhere. And somebody brought up this idea, a mentor that was leading a seminar I was in. And I said, okay, let's see if that's true. And I came across this study by these two guys, Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler. They were curious about the obesity epidemic. And is the type of epidemic that spreads from person to person like a cold or, you know, coronavirus? Or is it a percentage of the population like Alzheimer's? And what they found was absolutely startling. If you have a friend who's obese, your chances increase by 45%. Your friends who do not know them have a 20% increased chance. And their friends have a 5% increased chance. And this is true also for marriage, smoking habits, voting habits, happiness, Essentially, everything passes through our communities and our social networks. And I said, okay, that's crazy. If we can have such a profound impact on one another, I need to not only connect with extraordinary people, the type of people who have the characteristics I admire the most, but find a way to bring them together with each other so that they could positively impact one another. And that was kind of the origin of the dinners. I wanted to find a way to create deep and meaningful relationships between extraordinary people in a very short period of time. So who did you invite to the first one? Oh, the people that I invited to the first one were lovely and they were people doing well in real estate or social media and things like that. They weren't the kind of like titans of industry that I have now. Now I have like at every third dinner, there's like a Nobel laureate, there's Olympians at almost every dinner, editors and chiefs of major magazines, celebrities, Grammy award winners, Oscar winners, uh, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. So I've hosted over 2000 people 
at 227 dinners in 10 cities in three countries. Does it make it better to have Olympians and titans of business? In other words, what's the differentiator? I want to understand what you're getting from these. And like, it seems like you're emphasizing now having, you know, sort of elite people at these dinners. Is that true? So it's not a question of if it's better that they're elite or not. I think the question is what you're trying to accomplish. And what I often kind of point to is if you're trying to get your child into a competitive kindergarten, knowing Richard Branson or Oprah probably won't help you. The people that you surround yourself with should be consistent with what you care about. If you're trying to tackle your health, then it might be athletes and doctors. If you're trying to get financially responsible, then it might be people who are financially successful or who are experts on the topic. So for me, it's not about the fact that they're elite or not. It's that the standards by which they hold their life is pretty extraordinary. So when I got to go work out with some retired Navy SEALs, that workout was <laughs> game-changing in terms of how hard they push themselves. Or when I needed some medical advice, I was able to go to the former director of the Center for Disease Control. And that kind of access to experiences or knowledge is, is kind of wild. Like, I think I'm the only scientist that goes to the Emmys every year. <laughs> so how did you get these people to come? So, you know, I'm sure everybody's listening is going, all right, it would be great to have the head of the CDC or, you know, some Olympic. But what did you do and what's mimicable? So I think the first thing we need to understand is that as people's influence or success goes up in life, so is how many people want to connect with them. So demands increase and pressures change. And for the people at kind of, let's say, the very top of business, I'm not talking like global leaders like Oprah or Clinton or something like that. I'm talking industry leaders. People have a fundamental impact on an industry through their thought leadership, their position or their previous success. Everybody wants something from them. And what they specifically want is their social clout, their time, their expertise, their access and their money. Right? They're like these things that everybody wants a piece of. And so we can't approach people for those things. We need to actually look at what will get their interest. And what we were able to find is that there's essentially three or four things that are critical. The first is to be generous without any expectation of anything in return. And when I say generosity, I don't mean gifting people things, right? Mark, have you ever been to a party with a gift bag? No, actually, <laughs> I'm going to the wrong parties. No, you've never been to a party that has like a swag bag or a brand that's giving away some stuff? I haven't. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. So if you've ever had this experience, what happens is that you get the bag, you look inside and you realize there's absolutely nothing of interest in it, and then you throw it out or you re-gift it. And so giving people stuff tends not to work because we don't really value what we're given. But being generous through opportunities, introductions, experiences, that tends to actually be really wonderful for mm -hmm. people. So if I called you up and I said, Mark, hey, I'm taking a hike with these four or five super interesting people. That sounds a lot more appealing than, hey, I'm going to send you a copy of this book that you probably don't want to read. And so the first is generosity. It lowers people's defenses and reduces the concern that you're just after something. So where's the generosity come in? If you're not giving them a gift bag, what are you giving them? Oh, at my dinners, we're giving them a really terrible meal. Frankly, because the guests cook the meal, then what happens is that they're really getting connections to interesting people and a novel experience and very generously. Most of the time, if you want to meet high profile people, you have to go to like Davos or Ted. It's really expensive. Mm -hmm. So the second thing is novelty. 
which is that if you're a successful leader in your industry, you've probably experienced it all. You don't need another casino-themed fundraiser to be invited to. And there's a section in the brain called the SNVTA, which is the major novelty center. And when we trigger it, it causes a response relative to how novel that thing is and causes us to want to explore and understand it. So you remember when Hamilton came out, everybody's like, I have to get tickets. Mm -hmm. And they were a fortune because it was novel. It was different. It was that hot thing everybody wanted to talk about. If it was just Phantom of the Opera, nobody would care because it's been around for so long. And so if you can trigger something or create something novel, people will go far out of their way to see it or participate. Everybody wants a seat at the table, especially if you've been super successful, have a fear of missing out. The third characteristic is curation. Most influential people in our culture, everybody thinks they hang out with other influential people. They don't. They mostly hang out with their admins and staff, which means that if you can actually curate an environment with exceptional people, they'll go far out of their way for it. Define curation. It's who's got a seat at the table or in the room. Like a art curator selecting the paintings on exhibit. My job at the dinner is to have the right group of guests there. So you're really interested. You know, I have a bunch of podcasters, Mark. You might all already know each other, right? And it might even feel a little bit of competitive. But because I bring together an Olympian and a Nobel laureate and a tech CEO or whatever it is, all of them are impressed with one another and are fascinated by the success of the others, right? That Nobel laureate goes, man, I can't imagine winning an Olympic medal in track and field. Or this tech CEO goes, oh, wow, you won the Nobel Prize for your work in biology. That's incredible. So it doesn't feel like there's a hierarchy. So what's the pitch? You've mentioned generosity, novelty, curations. You're being very thoughtful about this. You're trying to create something that's really unique. And you want people to feel that they're being given something with no expectation. But in terms of the invitation itself, how do you get people to come? How are you meeting these people? How are you reaching out to these people? Uh, the invitation's kind of amusing. So we literally tell them everything that's going to happen with none of the details. So we would say, Mark, you're cordially invited to participate in the Influencers Dinner. This is a dinner where we bring titans of industry to, and we give maybe a few examples, to participate in a tasty dinner with great conversation and cocktails. And then we have a section on who's going to be there. So we say, oh, although we are not going to tell you exactly who's going to be there, the guest list ranges from... Olympians and Nobel laureates to CEOs, Grammy Award winners and Oscar winners. But sometimes we'll even add things like, and we've even hosted the voice of the barking dog from the song Who Let the Dogs Out, who won the Grammy. <laughs> when you started this, though, you weren't getting these kinds of people. So, Oh, no, 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 not at all. So it took me a, a while to realize that everybody's email addresses are really easy to get. Like if you put in some time, you can actually find almost any celebrity's email address or business leader. All the Nobel laureates, their email addresses are available because they're all in academia. So they're on their papers. So you can just find those. So eventually we came to this realization and started inviting people cold. In the early days, it was this just ridiculous dinner that I was running and the guests weren't nearly as impressive, but I kept running them. And by like the fifth or sixth dinner, I had like a TV producer and the TV producer said, oh, you have to meet my friend. And the friend was a Emmy award winning writer for like The Daily Show. And then they introduced me to the rest of the Daily Show writers. And then it ended up just expanding. But I also started traveling to all the big events to kind of host dinners. So I'd be at Park City, Utah during Sundance. 
And I'd have my research person research who's famous or successful that lives in Park City. And we'd find all these athletes and things like that. So it became a real process of learning how to talk about it because my family is, were immigrants. My parents were born in Israel and like I didn't really understand American culture that well. And so the way I would initially talk about it was kind of embarrassing. And then I learned to describe it more effectively as I kept inviting more and more people. And I'd just walk up to people on the street that I'd recognize or at events, somebody would tell me somebody's really important. I'd get their email address and we'd invite them. So what are the big takeaways? You've done many of these now and they started off small and modest. And now obviously you're attracting some pretty impressive people. What should our audience take from this? Should they adopt this? Is this something that they would want to do themselves? And what have you learned? Like, What are the big takeaways? First of all, the Influencers Dinner is something that I created. It's a private experience. But if people wanted to create their own events, like a hiking club or whatever, I encourage that. The big takeaways are, one, it doesn't cost a lot of money to create a sense of belonging, no matter how important a person is. We eat really terrible food cooked by the guests. And that's kind of ridiculous. I have some of the most successful people in our culture, literally billionaires, come to my home cook me dinner, wash my dishes, clean my floors, and then thank me for it. And that's because human connection costs virtually nothing. In fact, if you look at many of the closest communities in the world, they're those that are poorest because they need each other the most. The wealthier people get, the more isolated they get. And that's a major issue. The other thing is never confuse success for inapproachability or status. And the reason I say this is the most humble people that come to the dinners are the Nobel laureates because they know how lucky they were to get the right field of research that eventually led to something. Because if they just ended up in a slightly different topic of research, nobody would know their name. And so they know that a lot of it was luck that led them to their success. Obviously, lots of hard work and great thinking, but luck. And so I think it's really important to understand that a lot of the really incredibly impressive and successful people are amazingly humble and very approachable. That's like really encouraging to hear. Let's talk about belonging. This is one of the themes of your book. Please explain what you mean when you say that a feeling of belonging is its own reward. Absolutely. So for human beings, we survived as a species not because we're like the fastest or the strongest. It's because we work well together as a species. And as a byproduct, we are fundamentally dependent on one another. And so for human beings, if you notice, the greatest punishment we give people is either solitary confinement, right? We're separating you from society or exile, which means that intrinsically to us, fitting in is basically more important than anything else. The number of people who have even starved themselves so they'd be liked more or have just done incredibly, <laughs> frankly, stupid things over the years to try and fit in is probably the entire planet. <laughs> and so you can see that like all of us fundamentally want to fit in. And when I look at the great opportunity with connecting with people, it's not just knowing one person and another person. It's to foster a sense of belonging around everyone. Because the fact is, I have no real motives to having a Nobel laureate or an Olympian at a dinner. Like, I'm not going to do business with them. I'm not actually going to go and train with Olympians. Like, I'm not at their level. But 
when we can foster a sense of belonging or community, the positive impact on our life is pretty dramatic. I'm happy to share some stats if you. Well, actually, what I'm interested in is like, how would you apply that? So this is a leadership podcast and we've got a lot of leaders listening in. And my goal here is obviously to be as broad as possible, but everybody that comes on has some insight, some life's work that validates the thesis that that it's the hearts and people that really matter most. And so when you talk about belonging, I mean, that's sort of the essential need of the human being. And so I'm wondering, particularly now we're talking about moving into a hybrid workplace, but even in the absence of that, what would you advise leaders to do to create an even greater sense of belonging within their own teams? So this is great. The first thing I'd say is you cannot have too many cues for belonging. And a cue for belonging is anything that tells somebody that they're part of the team. A few years back, Google did something called Project Aristotle, which looked at the greatest predictor of team success and found that it's not IQ or funding or any of these things. It's psychological safety, that people can express an idea that might go against what the group believes. And they're not concerned that there will be punishment or exile from the group. And to create that level of safety or belonging is pretty extraordinary. And so there are lots of ways you can do it. Among them are the catchphrases that you use as an organization, like everybody's welcome or something like that. But there's a great project run by Francesca Gino and her team at Harvard Business School, where they looked at call center turnover. And it was for a company called WePro BPO. And standard in the industry is about a 50 to 70% turnover, I think, annually in call centers, which, you know, it's a pretty brutal job. You're often getting yelled at by strangers. And so the company tried to increase pay and perks. They thought, okay, if I give you more money, you'll stick around. But it turned out that actually did nothing. And so Gino and her team decided to do a one-hour intervention in addition to the standard training when onboarding people. So they had three groups. The first group was the control group did the standard training. The second group was company-oriented intervention. They had one hour about the company, the opportunities there. They had a high flyer come in and talk about the success that they had and how great it is. And then they were given a company hoodie and a company entry badge. That group had a 22% reduction in turnover, which is incredible for a one-hour intervention. Six months later, 22% less people left the company. The third group had a one-hour intervention that was individual-oriented. It was about you. And they would ask things like, what was the best experience you had working as part of a team, and how can you bring it to this team? If we were stuck on a deserted island, what skills would you bring to help us succeed? And then they had people receive a hoodie with the company name and their name on it, and an entry badge with their name on it as well. And here's what's interesting. There was, I believe, a 32% reduction in turnover. That's incredible. Just by starting off and contextualizing with belonging cues, giving people a hoodie with their name on it, asking them about their best experience of teamwork and how they would bring it to the company, continuously showed them cues for belonging. They belong here. Does that boil down to caring too, John? Uh, So it's interesting. Caring is really important. In fact, when you look at what trust is made out of, Right. Like we all talk about how important trust is in teams. Uh, Researchers generally agree it's made out of three things. It's made out of competence, your ability to do something. 
honesty, that you're truthful, and benevolence, that you have other people's best interests at heart, right? That kind of caring factor. Mm -hmm. Now, what's wild is that they're not all equally valued. So if Michael Jordan misses a shot, you don't go, he's incompetent, I can't trust him. Everybody misses a shot sometimes. So you can have a breach in competence and it's not a huge deal as long as there's a good track record. But if somebody breaches honesty, they lie to you, you begin to doubt everything they have said and everything they say moving forward. So clearly we value honesty above competence. But there's this really weird loophole. So Mark, imagine the two of us are walking down the street and you say, John, can we stop by a friend's house really quick? I want to pick up something. I'm saying, sure, no problem. And when we get there, 40 of my closest friends jump out and scream, happy birthday, surprise. So you have just gone to the extent of planning a surprise party for me. But it would be really weird if I turned to you and said, Mark, we can't be friends. You just lied to me. <laughs> right? Like, think about this. You technically lied to me. That was a breach of trust, but I was okay with it because you did it for benevolent reasons. Mm -hmm. So human beings value benevolence above honesty and honesty above competence when it comes to trust. What's really interesting is that you'll notice in general, human beings do everything backwards. And so we tend to like lead with competence and try to show everybody that we're perfect and that we can do something rather than demonstrating how much we care, how you, we understand other people's worlds. You've explained that really, really well. That's largely based on Francis Fry's work, I think. But the idea that benevolence is the one that stands out in terms of trust building, I think, is lost on a lot of leaders in terms of, you know, marrying the, by the way, we've had all these people that you've been mentioning, Francesca Gino has been on the podcast, Amy Evanson, Psychological Safety, and Francis Fry. And to marry all of those, you know, it really comes down to this idea that it's personalization, it's being assured that you are part of the collective, but most especially, you know, I'm pinpointing the name on the badge, the name on the on the hoodie. It's that you matter to the team. And that's really what you're trying to reinforce. Like the team wouldn't be the team without you. So there's great research, dates back quite a while, by these two guys, McMillan and Chavez. It's called A Sense of Community. And what they realized is that community isn't a thing. Right. Kind of like there's no metric for my spouse loves me. You just feel that they love you. And so for human beings, the sense of belonging or community comes from a feeling that the group cares about you and that you matter. And that by working together, the things that I care about and that you care about will come to life through our shared contributions. And I think that that's absolutely critical when looking at effective teams, because research by probably somebody else who had <laughs> Paul J. Zach looked at trust markers, right? He's the big oxytocin mm -hmm, researcher. Mm -hmm. The love hormone. Precisely. So he looked at trust markers and found that you can track a company's profitability, employee sick days, and stock value down to the level of trust at a company. And that shouldn't surprise us, but it kind of does. And the reason is really clear, that when you feel like you belong, you're not going to just take a larger offer to work at another company that might not be satisfying or have the, the culture you care about. You don't want to let go of those social ties. Also, when there's hard work to be done, you want to contribute because you're not going to abandon your team to work hard and let them down. And so I think the greatest superpower of a great company is belonging. And if you look at the companies that just burn their employees out or have really bad culture, much of the best talent I know will either say, hey, I'll come in as the CEO to see if I can change the culture, or they'll say there's no way I'm going to give up my quality of life to be in an environment like that. I don't think I've ever had anybody on the podcast make that point, that the great superpower is a sense of belonging. 
And I've worked in organizations early in my career and as confirmation, John, that there was something like the first bank that I ever worked for, the first organization that I ever worked for, I stayed for 10 years and then they failed. And it was like a major death in the family. And some people never recovered from it and like literally never recovered from it, never found another job. You know, they became self-isolating. And it was because they had this such a deep connection to the organization and the people in it that when that ended, they couldn't imagine themselves ever finding that again. That's how powerful it was. And I think that in banking, one of the classic examples is Merrill Lynch used to be known as Mother Merrill, like they would really care for their employees. And then I don't remember which CEO came in, but he was kind of ruthless. Ruthless. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And within a few years, created this hierarchical, really awful company culture, purely focused on profits. And the problem is that when you're purely looking at short-term gains, you can make a fortune burning your people out. You can make a fortune treating people terribly in the short term. But in the long term, if you want to be in the game a long time and create something that's really extraordinary, it's really hard to do that. I think we're finally figuring this out. I'm one of those people who's grateful in a perverse way to COVID because I think it's changed consciousness in a really profound way across the world. You know, we're looking at our values and we're looking at what makes our lives happy and fulfilling and meaningful. And and it's obviously not working for people that you just described. Interestingly, I was on the retail banking side of a large financial institution and they asked me to come in and lead a brokerage business. And the first thing that the people in the brokerage business told me was, and I had a reputation for being really caring and supportive and grooming people and helping people maximize their potential, everything that I basically write about, speak about, and obviously drove great success that way. And so when I came into the brokerage business, the people that were, by the way, very high level senior vice presidents who are now working for me were telling me, like, don't try to do what you were doing over there because it's not going to work with these people. And I'm like, oh, so, you know, stockbrokers, these people, I know they make a lot of money, but they don't really need to be cared about. They don't need to grow. They don't need to know that somebody cares about them. And they were like, just leave them alone. Let them produce. So I got on a plane and went and met with the top 25 of them across the country. And I just said, you know, I'm just basically here to visit you. And all I really want to know is, like, what can I do for you? And I had three people, like, with tears in their eyes. I'm not kidding. Out of the 25, basically just telling me, no one's ever done what you did. That you got on a plane just to come to see me. That's all you need to do, (laughs) you know? And it changed the whole dynamic of the corporation, or at least the business that I was running. And we had record profitability, and people were much more happy, and everything you're talking about. But we lose sight of it, because day to day, we're thinking about, got to hit a goal or I've got to meet, you know, some performance expectations. And so this idea of belonging and caring is one of the big themes of this podcast, but you've just articulated it in a way that I don't think we've ever heard before. Uh, First of all, I love that you did that. And Mark, I think I might need to interview you now for my next book. (laughs) I think that there was a big turning point, and I'm really not an expert at this on this topic, But there was a paper that had a huge influence on the business world about shareholder value, that a company's greatest responsibility is to maximize it. And when that happened, we switched from looking at how do we have a long-term business that benefits the employees and the customers to being solely focused on how do we make as much money for the people who invested. 
And so it became common practice to do things like fire people towards the end of the quarter so we can hit earnings. But if those were good people and you spent a fortune hiring them, then why would you then remove them from the family? Like it seems so counterproductive if the objective is to have a long-term successful business. You know, I think obviously some organizations are fighting this, but there's plenty now of scientific proof that this works more effectively. But we've always just thought that you just have to beat people and push people and people didn't want to work hard. And we're finding it's completely just the opposite. I promised at the beginning of your introduction, John, that we would get into some of the remote working concerns that play into your work. And we share this belief. And to declare from my audience, I'm a believer in hybrid. I think the opportunity to work from home is pretty magnificent, but I don't believe we should be doing it all the time. And so there's got to be this balance of bringing people together and being connected and building relationships and building trust that I think is better done face-to-face. I know there would be people shaking their heads going, he's wrong, but that's where I believe at this point. And I know you believe the same thing, which is helpful. (laughs) So, And I think it's important to also contextualize something, which is that human beings have a false consensus theory built into us. So this idea that, oh, because I hold an opinion and I'm friends with you, thereby you hold the same opinion as I do. And so there's this belief that like, oh, if I think this way, so does the rest of the world. The fact is that probably no two people agree on the future of work, right? What I'm most concerned with when it comes to work is what is the best for the individuals, society, and the company. And just because something is convenient doesn't mean it's good for us. And just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. And so me not going to the gym every day would give me an extra hour and a half, and it would be a lot more convenient, but it doesn't mean it's good for me to skip the gym. So that's a brilliant analogy. So tell me, I think we understand why going to the gym is worthwhile. Pin down the reasons why you believe going to the office is worthwhile. Because there are people that are really stridently, you're out of your mind. You know, my, I, you know, I've shared my opinions on Twitter just to give people my perspective. And this is what I do for a living. And I'm paying very close attention to it. But I'm also very much the heart guy. And mm-hmm. human beings are hardwired. Like we came into the world needing connection. That's what our hearts need in Babies order to Babies will thrive. literally die if they don't have contact. Yes. Infection. Like this isn't like an optional thing. But then people can say, John, well, you know, I have friends, you know, I, I don't need to have work friends. I have plenty of people in my society that, you know, my own universe, I've got my family and I've got my neighbors and I've got my friends. So I don't need to come to work in order to, to meet those needs. Mark, what I would say to that person is, hey, you might be the one in a million and that's fine. But this isn't about you. There's 20% of the, the U.S. population. One out of every five Americans is in a position where they could potentially work from home, right? Like it wouldn't work for a doorman or a chef. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's 80% of the population. So first of all, let's realize that most people, this is an irrelevant conversation for them. And 20% is still a huge portion of people. So let's really ask what makes life great, right? What makes us successful? And across everything that you could imagine, the greatest predictor of human longevity is after genetics, right? Number two is strong social ties, so close friends and family. Number one is social integration, measured by the number of people you come in contact in a day. So do you have a sense of kind of belonging or connection to others? And what generally happened, and listen, case by case, things are different. 
When people started working from home, anxieties rose and we began to apply our commute time to work time. So companies saw an increase in work hours. But in the process, we lost a lot of things. One is transition time. So I continuously speak to people who had commutes. They say, I have not consumed a book, a podcast, anything since the beginning of the pandemic. And so we've lost our time to process and think through either new knowledge or new scenarios. So when you're going to think through, how am I going to ask for a raise, that kind of time disappeared because there's no transition time anymore. Now, when people are saying, oh, I have more family time, okay, I'm curious when that is. Because what I've tended to see is that people are working the same, if not more hours, and they're working after dinner once the kids are in bed. But maybe they're saying, okay, I'm not traveling as much for work, right? I'm not flying places. That's very different than not going into an office. In fact, most of the people that I've come in contact with have overwhelmingly said that family time has become very stressful. And because people aren't around each other, those normal check-ins that you would have in hallway conversations or office stop-bys with your boss cause an increased number of meetings, which means that now your entire day is meetings and the work actually gets done late at night or over the weekend. So you're losing family time. And we're seeing an incredible level of burnout from this kind of work. On top of all of this, we've lost a real sense of belonging and connection in most cases with the people around us, which is this great predictor, right? It's harder to build trust at a distance. And as a byproduct, if you have a reduction in trust, a reduction in belonging, how much are you going to enjoy working at a company? And this causes an unraveling in general because then, okay, if I'm going to be stuck at home anyway, what does it matter if I work for Google or if I work for Facebook and it becomes easier to jump? Why do you think this isn't obvious to people? So in other words, we've all been working from home for the last 18 months and we haven't seen our people that we used to work with, people used to see every day, those of us that have been working from home. Obviously, not everybody has been working from home. Plenty of people go to work every day, but there's a 40, 45% of people are probably still working from home. And so you would think that it would bubble up, that you'd start to make some of the associations that you're making. Like, I think I'm being with my family more, but really I'm not because I'm in more meetings than I've ever been in. And that's eating up a lot of my time. And so after dinner, I'm backing on email and finishing up work. And so I'm like seeing my family, but I'm not actually being with them more. We start to think about people that we work with and man, I used to run into this guy or this woman and I used to have conversations with them that I'm not having anymore and I don't have time for that anymore. I'm not going to set up a separate meeting to run into, right? So these pieces I would think would start to add up. I think you point to something really interesting and here's a simple analogy. Would you ever say from this point forward, all education would happen remotely, pre-K, through college should take place remotely. I personally believe absolutely not. Yeah, I think almost everybody would agree. And so if you wouldn't allow your child to be isolated at home, what makes you think it's a good idea for you? <laughs> right? Like quite simply, it's just not good. Our social skills are deteriorating. Our social ties are deteriorating. Everything that's great about being human begins to fall apart. Now, I absolutely understand if you have an hour and a half commute, each way. My God, of course you want to stay at home. But I think the bigger question is why on earth do you have an hour and a half commute? That is either a problem that you should be working at another company, move, or it has become a situation where the living wage is so low that you are living so far away that it's just untenable. 
And that's the bigger issue. But the issue isn't with, should I go into an office or not? There's a different issue here in most cases. Now, I sympathize with people who have really difficult situations, but these situations are so complex. And I'll give you one more example. If you look at research by Future Forward, they found that when it comes to knowledge workers, 21% of white knowledge workers want to come into the office full time. Their black counterparts, only 3%. That's a seven-fold difference. That's huge. And I want you to think about what that means. That if we say, come in if you want and don't if you don't, then in the office, it would be even whiter than it has been. As a society, we've done a terrible job to have equity and inclusion. But imagine all the progress that has been made over the past years now visually disappears because the African-American employees choose to stay at home. So let me ask you a question. If the company says no, everybody has to come in, does that make it a white supremacist policy? Because that's what the white employees wanted. Or if African-American employees aren't coming into the office and they're not being seen and they're not being recognized, then chances are the person that will get the promotion is going to be their white counterpart. And so now we're actually seeing less inclusion and less diversity and less equity as a byproduct. So these things are incredibly complicated. And the fact of the matter is that out of sight, out of mind, there's something called the Allen curve. Mm -hmm. And research found that if you measure the distance between two people's desks, you can predict how much they'll communicate over every communications platform. And as distance decreases, communication grows exponentially. So if you're at home alone, sure, maybe you'll have some visibility through Slack, but overwhelmingly less people will communicate with you, be aware of you and engage with you out of sight, out of mind. And so if you don't actually care about getting a promotion or raise or any of these things, you just are doing a job to do a job, then maybe staying at home is a great idea for you. But if you actually care about experiencing belonging, happiness, work satisfaction, engagement, then you probably need at least some time in the office. I'm not a big fan of telling people to come in when you want to, because you sort of have this fantasy that when I go into the office, I have my discretion, that you're going to be there. Like, you know, oh, I'm going to go in on Tuesday and then I'll be able to spend some time with John. Well, if you're not in there, you know, or all the other people, because that's not a day that you chose to be in there, then it's a waste of my time to even go in. So to your point about the diversity, it's like if we're going to be giving people discretion to work from home on some days, my bias would be if I was the CEO, I would say everybody's in on the same days and everybody's off on the same days so that we get the clear benefit of being together and having that sense of belonging when we are together. Not that you come into the office and end up sitting in, you know, at your desk doing what you would be doing if you were at home. That's sort of like a complete miss. Here's the other side of it. This idea that somehow, okay, I'm going to try to make partner at my law firm. The moment you say, okay, we're required to be in three days a week, the first person who starts coming in four days a week is going to be the person getting noticed. And then the person who goes in five days a week is the one getting noticed. And now we're back for lawyers to seven days a week. It's just completely in competitive work environments. There's no way to win. You're just going to be probably back to the office anyway. Well, I mean, there seems to be the way you're describing it almost like this magnet, because another way that this is going to happen is like I go into the office on Monday and Tuesday is my day where I'm going to be working remotely. And my boss comes up to me at four o'clock and goes, going to be here tomorrow. And now I've got all that pressure 
you know, like I wasn't intending to be here, but now obviously he's asking me or she's asking me and that's making me feel sort of this guilt. And so that sort of becomes this reinforcing policy that if I'm not in the office, then I'm, you know, I'm missing out. But how do you make work from home work and still create a sense of belonging, I think is maybe a big question to ask you. So I think that that comes down to intentional design. The fact of the matter is that the best minds in the world are trying to figure this out. And it's really hard. Like, Mark, it is really hard. The best we can tend to do so far is mitigate the negative aspects. Now, there's also some positive aspects, right? Startups and so on can save money on real estate, which is really expensive. Hopefully, trains are less full in the morning when commuting and less cars being driven. All that kind of stuff is wonderful. But the fact of the matter is that nobody has a complete answer yet. And eventually, we'll figure some things out. But most companies are going to be too lazy to figure it out and apply the ideas even if they work. And I think where we need to begin is how do we trigger belonging at distance? And belonging, I would say, begins with trust. And trust fundamentally is built through kind of three or four different methods. One is called the mere exposure effect, which is just being exposed to something makes us like it more. But if we're not seeing our coworkers, then we're not going to be exposed to them. And that disappears. Does that mean that the company laptop screensaver is automatically going to show photos of your coworkers and what they're up to or like their baseball cards so you remember them so that maybe you want to contact them? <laughs> maybe. maybe it means that you could just click on it and it would send a quick thing being like, hey, we should catch up. And that might solve the bumping into the hallways problem, right? The other thing that we can look at is this idea of the IKEA effect, which is that people disproportionately care about their IKEA furniture because they had to assemble it. At the influencers dinner that I run, we have people cook dinner together because it causes them to care more about one another. And so can we find ways to have employees invest effort into one another, independent of just working on a project, independent of just me saying, hey, Mark, can you send me those files I need? Because we want them to feel like they're contributing to something larger. Maybe that's a volunteer day. So the people in the same area who are maybe working remotely can actually feel like they're part of a team. Or maybe it's because of something called a vulnerability loop, which is the basic unit of trust. You see, people think that trust precedes vulnerability, but it doesn't. Vulnerability precedes trust. And the example I like to give is, Mark, if we're walking down the street and I say, oh my God, Mark, writing this book and publishing it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I'm so burnt out. When I say something like that, I'm signaling vulnerability. Now, if you ignore that or make fun of me, trust will be reduced. But if you acknowledge it and respond with your own signal, like, John, I know how you feel working from home over the past year and a half has been really stressful. What are you dealing with? Well, if that's the case, then suddenly both of us have shown that we could be vulnerable to a high level and we're safe. And as a result, we trust each other more. And so can we create vulnerability loops over digital platforms? Can we have people share things? And I'm not talking about like their divorce. I'm saying like, Hey, Mark, I know you're an expert on X. Can I get your advice? Mm -hmm. Or, hey, today we're going to all share our family photos and our cute pet photos so that there's insight into one another's lives. And so suddenly people get a greater level of depth or dimension rather than Susie from accounting and Tamir from you know marketing. John, I'd like to take a brief break from our conversation and ask you a few questions about your personal interests, influences, and life philosophy. We call this the heartbeat round because all the questions are brief. We want you to answer each one instinctively, quickly, in other words, in a heartbeat. 
You ready to go? Am I ever? Let's do this. <laughs> Your favorite thing to cook for a large group of people. Ooh, so I make amazing like eggs that's like Mexican style and they are mouthwateringly delicious. Wonderful. Really easy dish to prepare that impresses people because it appears more difficult. Oh, wow. Uh, okay, I call it a quinoa volcano. So it's like quinoa and then it looks like I put an egg on top and it looks like it's melting down the volcano and there's a bunch of other cool stuff in the center. All right. An adventure you're most looking forward to taking. I'm going to Antarctica with my wife in December and I'm planned a 10 minute zero degree swim and have been preparing by working with a level three Wim Hof breathing instructor. So I survive it. Magazine or newspaper you never miss reading. I have a friend's newsletter that's phenomenal. He was the founder of uh, Museum Hacks and he just always shares kind of weird and interesting things. His name is Nick Gray. The trait you admire most in other people? Um, fostering community. People who can really bring others around them. Skill improvement you're working on right now? Cold weather <laughs> resistance. I do these like super cold plunges all the time to breath. One prediction about the future you're pretty certain will come true. I'm pretty sure I won't be around in 150 years. <laughs> one book you believe everyone should read. Oh, wow. Uh, one book everybody should read is, I think, Coddling of the American Mind right now is super relevant. Cultural value every organization should have. Uh, belonging. Quality that derails the most leadership careers. Arrogance. One piece of advice you'd give to your younger self. Oh, uh, start gathering people earlier. Your synonym for the word heart. Love. And something you think everyone should do at least once in their life. Ooh, uh, whatever it is they're terrified of, like bungee jumping or whatever it is, <laughs> go do it. I love that. That's great. And these were wonderful. So um, thanks for going through these with me. So let's wrap this up because I know you have to go. And I want to make sure that, you know, if you can just sort of pin down any last thoughts that you have, remembering these are leaders, taking all the insights that you've shared, what's your takeaway? What do you want people thinking about when this podcast is over? Wow. Uh, great question. <laughs> um, I want people to think about how they can really foster a sense of belonging, both in person and at distance. How do we figure out a way to have people feel like they're part of the team, even if they're not in the office? Because if people feel isolated and have no view of anything beyond the work that's directly in front of them, then, then they just have a job. And at that point, you might just be competing on salary. But if you can really give people a sense of belonging, then you have people who are dedicated to the organization and you have a value there that's not easily replaced with more comp. And so the biggest thing I'd focus on is how do we really have people feel a sense of community or belonging at your org? Thank you. And you said at the very beginning that this was going to be a great conversation. It turned out to be exactly that. So on behalf of my audience, John, thank you so very much. I really enjoyed it. This is my pleasure. Mark, thanks so much for having me on. You bet. All right. Take care. Bye. Just a quick note before we go, our podcast now has an audience in 155 countries around the world. And so I sincerely want to thank you and all of our listeners. The idea of leading from the heart is clearly now a global movement, and our growth and influence is the direct result of your recommending our show to your friends and colleagues. So once again, thank you. 
If you have someone in mind who you think would make a great guest, or if you'd just like to connect with me, please reach out to me via my website, markccrowley.com, or LinkedIn, or on Twitter. It's easy to find me. I would love to connect with you. I want to thank my producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz, not to mention the rest of my wonderful team, Carrie Finnessy, Susan DeRoche, and Ken Boynton. And until next time, I leave you with my constant reminder, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. And this is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now. Thank you.